Hello everyone, and welcome to episode three of Wake Up Call. Uh, this episode is gonna be structured a little bit differently because Milda is on vacation in Turkey. Lucky her. Uh, the only thing that's really gonna be different, we're still gonna have the alarm, of course, the guest discussion, and the rant, which has been, you know, your favorite part of this so far. And she did record her rant. The only difference is, you're just gonna be hearing a little bit more of my voice and a little bit less of Milda's. Lucky you. Today on The Alarm, we have the topic of populism and the global far right. And to discuss with us, we have an exceptional guest who has a master's and wrote his thesis on the far right, uh, Rokas, to be discussing the topic at hand with us. We're very lucky to have him on the show. With all that said and done, let's jump right into The Alarm. So without further ado, what is populism? Populism is an ideology that is characterized by putting an emphasis on the monolithic idea of there being the people and putting them up against the elite. Populists treat the people as a sort of singular, universally moral and good force in the world and the elite as the, exactly, as the exact opposite of that a singular universal force for evil in the world. Uh, and it basically is, is a simplification of how politics works. It frames politics as good guys versus bad guys, the elite versus the people. Uh, the, and basically what it, what it leads to is this sort of attitude that you're either with the people who are the good guys or you're with the elite. There is there's no in-between when it comes to the way of a populace seeing the world. Um, and the problem with populism is not that the elite don't exist or that there is some sort of singular force as the people. It's, it's rather that populists tend to define the terms uh, very arbitrarily on who is in the in-group and who's in the out-group. They tend to define these very arbitrarily along pre-existing societal fault lines. Uh, similar to, I mean, Donald Trump is a very famous populist. Uh, there was clearly a societal fault line against uh, immigrants and illegal immigrants and things like that. And he basically said, look, these guys are the force for evil in the world. They're making our country terrible. Um, and we, the good, the good Americans, are the good guys here and basically put those two groups against each other. So it can be uh, a particular ethnic group or a group of people. Um, it can be even the entire political system and institutions and corporations. Bernie Sanders is, is one of these types of populists that rather than defining the elite as a certain group of people, defines it as the institutions of power and um, the big corporations that basically are uh, run, run America and things like that. So I think it's also important in this to note that not all politicians that say that they stand with the people or point out flaws in institutions or talk about immigrations are populist. That's, that's not the case at all. Populism requires a very specific and very, um, and very intentional us versus them style uh, monopoly. And it's not even about left versus right. You can have right-wing populists like Trump, left-wing politists like, uh, populists rather, like uh, Fidel Castro, um, and even centrist 
centrist Milda, centrist populace like uh, Beppe Grillo. I'm sorry for butchering that name in, in Italy. Overall, in my opinion, it's a very thin ideology that aims to provide simple answers to extremely complicated, uh, complicated issues in society, which is number one, why it's extremely effective at riling people up. People like it when you put things in simple terms and not overly complicate things. And number two, it's also why it's extremely dangerous when it's in power because complex problems require complex solutions. As we're seeing the rise of populism now, it's, it's, it's like, it really echoes a lot of the stuff in the past. Um, what it seems to me in the research that we've done and finding trends and looking at populists is that they really emerge out of some unaddressed need in society that politicians and the ruling class have just not addressed whatsoever. Whether it's inequality, whether it's unease about immigration, whether it's, you know, pretty much anything, um, it basically emerges out of a sense of people being unheard and then a politician saying that they're fighting for those people that are feeling unheard by uh, the establishment. I think obviously the biggest example of this is Trump and Hillary Clinton just oh my God, just made it so much worse by calling his base the deplorables and uneducated and basically treating them as like losers. And I think this is, this is literally what gave rise to Trump is that these people felt that they were being treated by losers, by like, like losers by all these politicians who didn't care about them, didn't address any of their needs. And in Trump, they saw a guy that spoke to them. Um, in Canada, we have a, a slightly milder populist. I mean, the Conservative Party leadership elections are happening. Um, and one of the candidates, Pierre Poiliev, has been described as a populist by some. And he, he definitely is has populistic tendencies that rails against uh, the elite institutions. Like, he's he, he hates the Bank of Canada for whatever reason, the central bank, because he thinks that they, like, intentionally caused inflation. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of examples on the right, and I'm sure that uh, Rockus would be much more of an expert on that than uh, than us. What I find especially crazy about populism is that they can make some of the most powerless and marginalized groups of people like the elite and basically sort of say that they're like ruining the country and running the country. Like Trump with illegal immigrants, like what power do illegal immigrants are literally the most underprivileged group in American society. Like, they have zero power, they can't vote, they can't do anything, they can't, like, you know, they can barely make money, they're always scared of, like, running away. But somehow he convinced people that they're the cause of all the problems instead of the big corporations that are outsourcing their jobs and, you know, things like that. I really just want to summarize by just identifying what are the benefits of populism, because although I'm broadly anti-populist, there are some real benefits to populism if it's done correctly, and what are the drawbacks of the ideology. So I think some of the benefits are, uh, number one, as I alluded to earlier, I think that they can generally, populists accurately identify societal grievances and problems, and they speak to people that are feeling unheard. Um, and I think that it's useful when you when a populist is able to find a group of people that are unheard and and mobilize them and create them into their base because it shows that the politicians aren't listening to the people and they, they need to improve and they need to heed the voices of the unheard.
Um, and if it's done properly, I believe that populism has the capacity to fundamentally change the country and the region for the better. All revolutions, such as the French Revolution, Soviet Revolution, that was not a good one, um, et cetera, et cetera, they were all, uh, they were all populist in nature. Uh, because it was the people rising up against the elite. And, you know, these people had their leaders who were who were populists, basically saying, look, this system is not working for us. It's only working for a certain group of people at the very top. Um, so let's talk about the drawbacks of, of that. that. Those are, I think that accurately represents some of the benefits of uh, populism. Here are some of the drawbacks. Minority rights can be compromised just because of its inherent majoritarian nature. It's not based, populism isn't based on like, you know, what are the, it's not based on a core set of values like, oh, everyone should have equal rights, everyone should have this, everyone should have that. It's like, oh, what do the majority of the people want? What do the people want? Who are the people? Um, and Milda, I think you accurately pointed this out when you were talking about Hungary and Poland's crackdown on LGBT rights because they've sort of framed LGBT ideology or whatever, you know, they're calling it as like this fundamental evil that's corrupting society. Um, I think Trump's treatment of immigrants and illegal immigrants and, and things like that is also a noted example on how minority rights are compromised. And a lot of people forget that Trump also um, was taking charge of this crackdown on transgenderism and he banned them from being in the military and, and did a whole bunch of things like that. Um, a second drawback is that it does not leave any room whatsoever for disagreement or dissent. You're either with us or you're against us. There is no in-between in populism. Uh, and the third, and something that I think is extremely dangerous and why I think the main reason why I don't like populists is because they tend to erode democracy once they've been elected or being been put into power. Because they have the quote-unquote will of the people behind them, and anyone that opposes them is like a fundamentally evil force, they can basically start to hack away, like Orban is doing, at dem democratic institutions, uh, put their yes-men in power, and, and, and start eroding the democracy that got them elected because they believe and they tell the people that they have the will of the people behind them. Because they have the will of the people behind them, they basic, the, the will of the people behind them, they basically take that as, oh, okay, we can do whatever we want because that is what the people, um, that is what the people will. Um, and the last one is that the elites are just often minority groups. They're often racial minorities, LGBT people, immigrants, etc. Um, and this, rhetoric of of like the other and and uh us versus them and who, who are they and things like that leads to astonishing amounts of xenophobia within the country both like like policy wise as i talked about earlier but also just culturally um like if if you notice like like the rhetoric both both the like actual policies and the rhetoric and like you know we saw we see rises in like hate crimes rises in you know, discrimination and things like that. It emboldens a population to have more xenophobic tendencies. Um, I also want to point out that, that like, Hitler was a populist, and this is what he did to basically turn the German people against whichever minority group. Like, he started with Jewish people, and then he talked about disabled people, and then LGBT people, and, it's, and the list goes on and on and on. He basically categorized all those people as the elites that were ruining Germany and 
depriving them of their of their glory. And I think that this is something that cannot be ignored. And I think that that is one of the most toxic traits of populism. So for our guest discussion today, we have Roque Skarishis. So Roque, maybe you want to just quickly introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Rokas. I am a activist, wannabe researcher, and uh, an, an engaged citizen, I suppose. I, I hold a master's degree in public policy. Um, and um, yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, agreeing to come on. Um, so we wanted to talk about like the global far right. So do you want to start us off by giving us what your definition of the far right is? Is there even a clear universal definition? Uh, yeah, that's an important place to start at because uh, it's one of those terms that's been highly contested throughout the past hundred years when we started studying the the just the ideas of Nazism and uh, and the far right. Throughout that time, we've had plenty, like multiple dozens of different terms of how we call that. We sometimes call them Nazis, the fascists, and whatnot. Uh, you know, I, I think Milda has heard me list out the ter- uh, the different terms that that we have throughout the years. But really, I think for simplicity, at least political scientists re- have recently settled in the past 15 years on the term the far right. That is denoting an ideology that is basically going to be made up of three main things. And those three main things are nativism, authoritarianism and populism. Uh, to give a a brief breakdown of what those terms mean, nativism would be kind of your general preference for people of your own ethnic or racial kind. Uh, In politics, that would translate into a preference for an ethnostate. So this would be people, you know, a country that's only basically made up of of the people that have the same background as you. Um, Authoritarianism is the preference for sort of vertical hierarchical relationships in all social life and sort of a preference that this is natural, this is how it's supposed to be. This is a general trend in, uh, on the right wing to sort, of, uh, to sort of naturalize, you know, human difference and saying that hierarchies are normal, they're natural, we can see them everywhere. And so humans should also be like that. And finally, populism is, is what we call in science uh, a thin-centered ideology, meaning that it doesn't have like any content of its own, but it's very good at attaching itself to other existing ideologies, which is why we have both left-wing and right-wing populism. But specifically, the right-wing kind is going to more or less you know, divide, uh, divide society into two groups. Uh, and there's, of course, a division between them. So the two groups are... Um, you know, the people. So these are always kind of morally good common people who are getting abused by the corrupt elites at the very top who are, you know, disengaged. Uh, They don't care, you know, for the common man, and they're just uh, abusing us in in very many creative and weird ways. Um, So that's populism. So combine uh, these three and you get uh, this umbrella term called the far right that encompasses both extreme forms of the far right and radical forms of the far right. We could be talking about radical right wing populist parties, but we could also be talking about you know specific politicians. Uh, it could be social movements and whatnot, uh, and much much more. So this is what I'll generally use as as the term. The far right is this kind of catch all umbrella term here. Yeah, thank you. That's that's great to know the more concrete term. And earlier in the podcast, we were just talking about how popular the far right is right now in like Europe and stuff. So maybe you have some idea why 
is the far right and certain populist movement so popular in like quite a stable maybe time in history in liberal democracies? Hmm. Well, the boring answer here is, of course, we would have to break down, like, what do you mean by stable? Like, sure, we maybe haven't had war for a while, uh, which, you know, that's that peacetime is kind of over in Eastern Europe nowadays. Uh, It would depend on what do you mean by liberal democracies as well, of how do we find that who are actually, you know, counts as a liberal democracy in this case and in each of these cases i would have to give you like a different explanation because unfortunately the 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 one reality and the one thing that uh, political scientists agree on is that there isn't a single good explanation that is going to you know explain the the rise of the far right you are right that there are generally if we look at like uh, aggregates you know voter shares for far right parties we will see that globally they have uh, seen quite a bit of success. They're actually the most um, successful party group of the past 20, 30 years, even though you know, people are saying that, no, it's going to be the Green parties that are going to you know, be sweeping elections left and right. No, 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 it's the far right uh, that have increased, I think, in the past 30 years, their voters share from around 4% to, to 20% nowadays. Uh, so they are on the rise. However, the story is not that simple. You know, if we break it down country by country, we'll see that, you know, where there were where there were no historical far-right parties, there's still none. And where there were historical far-right parties, now they're kind of seeing a resurgence. But uh, we generally use the term intermittent success, meaning that it's irregular, it's not stable. There's really multiple ways to explain it. Um, and one, there isn't going to there isn't going to be just like a magic bullet to explain it all. Unfortunately, now that doesn't that doesn't mean that we cannot have like you know interpretations and ideas of why is this happening. It's just that they're never going to tell you the full picture. Um, but what I generally try to do is just equip uh, you know people who are interested with the with the general kind of frameworks to to to, to understand uh, the potential explanations for it. So generally, you can break down the explanations of why is the far right still here um, into uh, supply and demand side factors, right? Uh, what I mean by that is we can imagine parties as you know basically branding companies that are uh, meeting some sort of demand from the uh, from um, uh, from the population, from the voter base, and they're also selling something, right? They're also trying to sell themselves. So we can analyze this situation from two sides. We can firstly ask ourselves, well, why are people like feeling the need to vote for the far right party like at all, right? Why is that a thing that exists? Why do people? Why are people willing to to vote for these people in the first place? Uh, so this is where we would look at maybe their economic situations, right? Maybe in the past thirty years with rising inequality, a lot of people have uh, entered into um, you know poor economic situations or perceived poor economic situations and so they're maybe uh, afraid of the competition that is brought on by the globalization of labor markets right and so now you have to compete against so many you know uh, workers from the global south who are you know according to them willing to work for much lower wages and so you're losing economic status and stability as a result of immigration. So you might want to vote for the far right party that's going to be like, I'll stop immigration, I'll stop them from taking your jobs. Um, 
however the you know that doesn't really translate into uh, empirical data like if that was true then we, we we might see that maybe in poorer or more unequal countries we would see more of the far right which isn't necessarily the case in all countries we also see that if we if we take a look at studies and look for correlations between your economic status and your willingness to vote for a far right party that's also not necessarily the case and usually the study uh, studies mostly conform uh, confirm uh, a much stronger correlation between your economic status and voting for a far left party instead. And so the far right uh, party voter is, is still this sort of an enigma that is going to have a different profile on a country to country basis. Uh, and so people look for other explanations beyond just economic theories. Uh, there's you know cultural theories, this idea that you know in the 70s we've experienced a massive, um, shift in just uh, generational uh, generational norms and specifically like cultural norms away from material uh, ideas about you know about class and whatnot uh, towards cult cultural issues like LGBT feminist issues and whatnot or immigration or uh, or stuff like that and then as a result we have a sort of intergenerational clash between these cultural ideas as the last you know boomer generation is seeing what they valued kind of go away and and kids these days you know they don't value the same things that they used to and all this and that so there's that whole idea alongside we have also a broader uh, theories that I personally don't like, but they do exist of this idea of, uh, of a civilizational clash, right? That through immigration, because the world has been globalized, uh, we have different sort of value systems coming from different cultures clashing, you know, to each other. And, um, and you know, the far right is a result of that clash, where, uh, you know, uh, where, you know, um, the you know, they call themselves Judeo-Christian value defenders, kind of stand up to protect themselves from this onslaught of, you know, uh, Muslims and whatnot. Um, so that's, the, this is sort of the gist with the culture clash theories. There's other ideas about maybe that we're losing, uh, you know, trust in democracy and in our institutions. Uh, and maybe that's pushing people to vote for the populists who say, yeah, the system has failed you and these liberal elites have sold you out, right? So then maybe we could we, we could argue that uh, that's the, uh, the, the sort of um, a root reason behind the far right. But even then, we don't find empirical evidence like Lithuania, our favorite country on this podcast, a uh, friend of the show, <laughs> has <laughs> the worst trust in democratic institutions in Europe, and we don't really have a far right party in power. And so, so yeah, so there's a plethora of diff different sets of economic, social, and cultural theories to try and explain this. No one is going to explain them all, but this is just to give equip you with the tools to kind of analyze it by on a case-by-case -case basis. I hope that answers at least part of the question. Yeah, that, I mean, that definitely does. Uh, the next thing that we wanted to talk about was a lot of people on the far right sort of make themselves out to be defenders of the working class, defenders of, of the downtrodden, et cetera, et cetera. I think Trump is an excellent example of this as someone that sort of styled himself at, at the very least as someone that defended uh, the common man. But in reality, a lot of right-wing, uh, far-right figures uh, like Trump really just continue to like keep the elite institutions and the elite people in power. For example, he cut taxes for the rich, which allowed them to outsource more jobs and, and do things like that. So my question is, why do people 
believe these people when their actions, in fact, just create more uh, elite institutions. So how are they able to convince the common person that they stand with them? Mm -hmm. That's a good question and a really tough one as well, because once again, we could analyze whether maybe we could analyze it through the lens of what sort of rhetorical devices, say, people like Donald Trump use in order to convince people. Maybe they're just like really good debaters. On the other hand, we could also argue that maybe it doesn't have to do much with Donald Trump and his rhetorical skills, but instead, uh, you know, with the people in these conditions, like there is a lot of studies going about right now of the so-called proletarization of the far-right voter. Uh, so this is particularly what we see in Europe and in, in, in France and in Sweden, this idea that, yes, since the 90s, these far-right parties have kind of taken on a much more anti-capitalist stance and have you know, protected uh, welfare states in certain conditions. Um, the, part of the answer would probably be just the, the inability of left-wing parties to really capture these policy issues, right? When we talk about uh, United States of America, uh, up until now, up until Donald Trump, both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party were not workers' parties. We, you, you didn't have a labor party that was properly like protecting workers' rights uh, in the United States of America. The same is true in a lot of countries where the far right has risen, uh, be it like in Hungary or, or, or Poland. Um, two terrible examples of the far right gaining uh, probably the most power around the world. Uh, that's in Poland and Hungary. Um, and part of their success story is that they were the first parties to offer a break from the sort of neoliberal agenda of welfare retrenchment, of uh, tax cuts and whatnot. And so, and, 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 and the reason behind that is, you know, it's going to be different from, from country to country, of course, but um, there was simply no other alternative for them. So, you know, part of the story here then, to, to, to go back to your question, of course, Donald Trump's populist rhetorics. Uh, in general, um, the problem with populism is that it works. And people were generally, up until these elections, very disillusioned with politics. People don't feel like they can change things at all. The vast majority of people don't even vote. And so this is what the situations where populists thrive in, where they uh, sort of give a perceived uh, sense of agency for people that are kind of, you know, saying the quiet part out loud and actually confirming their beliefs that, yes, the corrupt elites are actually abusing me. Uh, and that alone is a very, I think, brings a lot of catharsis to, to, to voters who, you know, have been voting maybe their entire lives, but have never seen their interests be represented in politics. And then here comes Donald Trump and actually breaks off the kind of nice guy attitude that we've heard until now, where basically every single president is pretty much the same, right? They smile very nice, they talk nice things, but then end, end up doing the exact same, you know, policies that hurt the working class, the class until now. So Donald Trump then kind of represents a break from that, a break from the traditional kind of nice guy politician that, uh, that, that people were really fed up until now um, and, um, and give a sense of agency that was lost, right? That is kind of fixed in democratic disillusionment. Um, this idea has, and, and, and theory in general, has also a lot more power in, in Europe. I think it can explain a lot more. Uh, whereas like in Eastern Europe, uh, for example, you know, after the 90s, what people were expecting that after the fall of the Soviet Union, we're finally getting democracy, right? We're finally getting some sort of agency and say in how we're going to be ruled. But then the problem, the problem is, is that in order to rebuild our economies, we had to take out a bunch of loans, which that in the end meant 
that a lot of our economic development was out of the hands of the population that was voting, but in the hands of international monetary institutions, right? That have been guiding our policy uh, for the past 30 years, which is completely undemocratic, right? We did not, did not elect them. We don't get to say whether we're going to use austerity politics or, uh, or not. And so Kas Mude, one of the probably the most famous political scientists of the far right, then has a really cool uh, quote that, uh, that says something along the lines of, Know, the far right being um, an illiberal democratic response to decades of undemocratic liberalism, uh, which I thought, uh, I think it speaks heaps about the, the situation that, and, and yeah, and then finally going back to, to your question, yeah, it's, it's part of the story is that, that people felt disillusioned, uh, people felt like they were not being represented, um, they, they might as well trust a, politi- uh, a businessman much more than a politician because a businessman is, seen, you know, of course, we know that he's part of the elite that he says he's fighting. But at the same time, you know, from a, from a common voter's perspective, uh, a businessman is, and a successful one at that, is the epitome of, you know, an, an American success story, a, a self-made man, uh, you know, who's moral because he's rich. Um, and so I think it's much easier than for rich people to pretend like they're not the politicians. I think, you know, generally, you know, the politician and the businessman are generally the two most hated professions in the world, but the businessman a little bit less. And this helps people like Donald Trump to pretend like, hey, I'm not as corrupt as the people in power, the politicians who have been screwing you over this entire time. So again, lots of different angles to this, but um, here, here's a couple, I guess. Yeah, and I want to go back a bit to what you said earlier. You said that there might be the perception that a lot of the working class and the poor people vote for the far right, but it's actually not really like that. Could you maybe expand a bit more that more on that and like who really votes then for the far right? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's an important question, but also a really tough one. Obviously, then the the, the voter is going to be different from from time to time and from country to country. Once again, I guess I'll just have to repeat that to, to every single question today. But um, traditionally, when we talk about far right parties, we used to talk about them and consider them as uh, Mannenparty, which in German just means like men's parties, uh, meaning that traditionally it used to be just young white males voting for these parties. However, it, it, it's still true, right? Statistically, that's still going to be your, your your, your most common vote, uh, voter for a far, uh, far right party, but they're lately trying to rebrand themselves. For example, if we take take a look at, at the case in France of uh, Rassemblement National and uh, Marine Le Pen, right? She's trying to rebrand the far right as something different. You know, we're no longer the Nazis. We're no longer just a, a white man's party. You know, our leaders, like a female and whatnot. And so they're, they're specifically trying to, for example, um, weaponize Islamophobia to expand their voter base because they've realized through just simple rational like calculations that they cannot win elections just on a single voter base, right? So they're trying to expand that. And they use uh, very successfully Islamophobia for that because through Islamophobia, you can start talking about stuff like, oh, you know, these people from the Middle East, they're coming and guess what? They don't respect women's rights, right? Women don't get to choose what they wear in their countries. And guess what they do to the gays, huh? They throw them off the roofs. And that's why we should not let them in or shoot them at the border, right? So this is, it it is a de-situation when we get... Uh, you know, feminonationalism or homonationalism, which is when 
uh, sort of these liberal ideas are utilized uh, for far-right purposes. And this helps them expand their voter base out of the traditionally white, you know, straight middle-class male into other demographics as well. So it has been changing and there has been shown that, you know, young women right now sort of vote a little more for the far-right than they traditionally used to. Um, then going into other demographics, race matters sometimes as well. It's still generally going to be, you know, um, a, you know a white man's party. Uh, however, that doesn't mean that immigrants, for example, wouldn't vote for far-right parties, which was a very interesting ph phenomenon, right? We tend to think that, you know, a far-right party is not going to be good for, for an immigrant. But sometimes, you know, this is one of the ways that they try to assimilate into a country. It's just kind of overcorrecting themselves and also presenting themselves as like hardcore in-group members who also hate, the, uh, hate those dirty immigrants in order to like, you know, prove themselves that they're the good ones, right? They're the good kind. So race matters sometimes, but it doesn't explain that much or like in every single country. Um, it does mostly like in, in America. In America, it's mostly going to be the white people voting for, for, for the far right. Um, then there's this whole idea um, specifically that, um, you know, if we look at the rhetoric, it seems like they're trying to fight for uh, for the people who are sort of left out, right? Um, the, the, this theory is called the, the globalization theory, this idea that through globalizing our labor markets and, 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 and capital, that it has produced a lot of winners, but it has also produced a lot of losers of globalization. Um, so these are the, the this is the theory of the the left behind, right? And the idea here is that these people who are left behind, who feel disenfranchised by the you know the, the liberal world order, that they're the ones voting for the far right. Unfortunately, that's also you know the studies that can't confirm that because what we generally see is the people who are actually left behind. They don't vote at all, right? They're just completely disillusioned with democratic politics, so they just don't go to elections at all. And the people who are actually voting for the far right are usually small business owners, middle class people. So this would be what we call, you know, the petit bourgeoisie or the petit bourgeoisie. Um, so you know, so this is people who have something to lose, and so therefore they're the most scared of potentially losing something. This has traditionally been been the main voter base of the far right, this petit bourgeoisie group of people is usually around the middle class, the top middle class. Those are going to be consistently the, 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 the people voting for them. One last thing, still in general, that's not going to be universally true. The only one factor that scientists have confirmed is that of education. Consistently, this is the one thing that can that can you know more likely predict a vote for the far right is if you're less educated. Um, so, and that's the only like one thing that has been proven and shown kind of across the board, but, you know, it still doesn't explain everything. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I know that a lot of people across the Indian diaspora in America, like my family's Indian, a lot of people in the Indian diaspora in America voted for Donald Trump because, you know, he was anti-Muslim and, you know, of course, these are people that would have supported the BJP in India, who and Modi is another person that would be described as, I, I don't know if I'm correct here, as a sort of right-wing, uh, far-right uh, figure and uh, politician. Uh, so we are running low on time here, but we really want to hear about what your master's thesis was about. Do you want to, do you want to give us a quick little TLDR on, on what your findings uh, were? 
Um, so I, I mostly did uh, I mostly did like theory work. So um, this is the reason why I say I'm a, I'm a scientist wannabe. It's because I'm not very good at collecting data and confirming. I'm much more interested and much better in the in the field of theory and going through the the work that other people have already done and trying to make new sense out of it. Um, but generally, what I was interested in is the is the interaction between gender, uh, right wing populism, and their social policies. I kind of saw you know, that there's, there, there, there must be a, a certain kind of connection between them. And I, uh, and I tried to link it back to, to political economy, um, which is a lot. <laughs> I'll try to explain it very shortly. So, um, so my basic idea, I started by analyzing the sort of gendered construction of, you know, the people in far-right ideology, right? At the heart of the far-right ideology is the so-called grand replacement theory. You probably heard about it. It's getting like, like Vice has made a bunch of videos about it already. It's, it's, it's only everybody knows about it. Um, but yeah, and this, this is the idea that Western elites um, have sold out their populations to the Middle East in return for oil. And so, you know, basically Western elites get oil and in return, they send all of their people, you know, to, to Europe. And we're basically getting colonized uh, by the global South through immigration, thus replacing the white nation, right? This is at the heart of most far-right ideologies. There's different iterations of it, uh, depending on where you are. Um, but the idea is still basically the same, right, of this sort of outward threat. Now, what's very often missed in this analysis is that uh, it implies a very strict gender regime that we don't really talk about that, uh, that often, right? So uh, what I mean by that is it implies different roles for men and women to be considered, you know, the good people, part of the demos that Nazis usually tend to protect. For men, this means protecting the people from outside threats, right? Hence, uh, for example, we have, um, hence why, uh, the, you know, uh, a good fascist man is going to have to be a soldier and a violent man who's going to have to go to war and whatnot. This is why we also uh, have anti-immigration policies, right, to protect the people from uh, from outward threats. And this is why, uh, for example, the German extreme extreme uh, far-right group called the Third Path uh, has been recently caught, like, patrolling the Polish border uh, to fend off the immigrants. And they were, like, carrying, carrying bayonets and machete, uh, machetes and whatnot. Um, and they were all men, obviously. And the reason behind it is that that's their job, to protect, you know, the integrity of, of, of white people and white civilization. Um, but that's been well well analyzed and written about. Not much has been written about what it means for women, even though we've consistently seen the uh, very particular prescriptions for women uh, under a Nazi regime, right? Uh, for women, their job is to protect the population from inner threats, right? So uh, this means kind of um, for a particular group of men, women that is going to be white, uh, heterosexual, you know, traditional middle-class women to reproduce as much as possible so that we can keep up the numbers of soldiers going and to kind of reproduce the nation. Um, and um, hence we have uh, natalist policies supported by the far, uh, for, uh, by far-right parties across the board, be it in France or be it in Hungary. Natalist, by the way, means just a preference. Uh, uh, natalism is this kind of sort of like anti-Malthusian belief that 
um, we should actually reproduce as much as possible, but not everybody, right? If you're not white, if you're not rich, if you're not like straight edge, you know, cis hat, then you don't get to reproduce, right? Screw you. Actually, the, the Nazi policy used to be the opposite, right? You get the pill. This is why we have, you know, um, uh, what was it like those repro uh, repro um, Planned Parenthood centers, I think originally were meant to, to, to stop up immigrants from, from reproducing in the United States of America, right? But if you are a white middle-class woman, then you have to reproduce as much as possible to reproduce the nation. Um, and this is sort of the relationship with uh, with uh, with Nazism and women's control uh, control of women's reproduction, right? Um, this is why it's so inherent to the ideology. It's not just like a one-time thing that they do. And we've seen this through time as well. For example, there's been the concept of angel makers in Italy, uh, in fascist Italy, that is, right? So, uh, whereas, um, uh, you know, still the idea of this kind of traditional, you know, housewife was was uh, was upheld as uh, something that every single woman in Italy should pursue. Um, so, yeah, and I, I call this, and this is my, 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 my term, I, I take credit for it, <laughs> but I call this repopulism. Uh, and this is the populism of reproduction. Um, and this is what I, you know, and, and, and so this is my main contribution. I think this, this paradigm of repopulism helps us explain, for example, why is the far right so anti-LGBT or, or why are they anti-feminist, right? It explains their rationale as well as the politics behind it. It can explain us why do they pursue natalist policies in, in Hungary, for example, why are you... Uh, much more likely to get an apartment or, or a cheaper car if you are a mother as opposed to if you're not, right? Uh, it can explain us why are they going after abortion rights or the pill, right? Um, so this is um, so this was my first uh, part of the work, kind of the serial work of, uh, around repopulism and developing this framework. And then I ended up by trying to ask the question, why? Because I really was not satisfied with the, with the theories that I, that I at first gave you, and I sought a relationship between this and what can just pull the political economy of the country can tell us. Uh, so this is where I got into how um, you know the neoliberal growth model in Eastern Europe after the 2008 global financial crisis was simply not sustainable anymore because uh, financing from from Western capital dried up completely. Um, but the whole country is built on the idea that, you know, for of foreign investment, that through foreign direct investment, we can continue growing. And we couldn't after 2008. And so after that crisis, we see a massive shift and break from neoliberal politics towards capital investments from from east, uh, from the east, uh, which then opens up, you know, um, pathways for for cultural influence influence from Russia as well from other new uh, illiberal uh, places as well um, and whatnot so so this is what I worked on <laughs> so this is what I worked on <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much I, that sounds really interesting and I'm sure that if we had more time we'd uh, talk more about that but for now that's it uh, thank you so much for coming on the show yeah thanks for having me cheers All right, now it is time for the rant. This is where me and Milda take a political issue that we're passionate about, doesn't have to be related to the topic at hand, and rant about it for however long we want. Milda, what are you ranting about today? Yeah, so a couple of days ago, I was scrolling on Instagram, and I saw a post about Elon Musk, about how he had twins 
with his employee, uh, the director of operations and special projects at his brain chip company, Neuralink. And basically the caption was something about him being scared about the world not being populated enough, him basically urging people to procreate and have more children. And I was really intrigued and I talked to uh, about this with my friends and I was like, wait, isn't there like actually overpopulation or am I stupid? Is Elon stupid? What's happening? So I was very intrigued and I did some research and I want to share it today with you guys. So basically, of course, I know that all of you might hear concerns about how the world is overpopulated and how we should limit it because of global warming, because of food shortages. But the data shows something different, something different, actually. The data shows that every continent except Africa is expecting a population growth decline in the 21st century. And there's a couple of reasons for this. I'm going to talk about two reasons today. So first of all, overcrowded cities does not really equal an overcrowded planet. Like you have to understand that the entire world population can fit into the state of Texas with the same population density as Manhattan. So, you know, these kind of mega cities, such as New York, with like huge population densities, they arose from migration, globalization, us moving freely, but also a very big problem before and now is still the rural and urban divide that we have in many countries and in the world. Of course, people in urban areas have a lot of work opportunities, good schools, uh, better quality services, more services, etc., etc., which basically incentivizes rural inhabitants to move to urban areas. But that is what created a lot of issues for us as the human uh, species, because because of this very rampant urbanization, we have concentrated pollution, which kills thousands of people every year. We have horrible living and working conditions in urban areas. And we have the notion that we have overpopulation because there's no space for us to live. Quite literally, like my, my friends who are going to university with me from September, they cannot find housing. There's like one and a half months left in The Hague to find housing and they still don't have it. I don't know what they're gonna do, but whatever. So a potential fix, of course, for this overpopulation issue then would be migrating to more, more suburban or more rural areas and for the governments to invest in those areas, to allocate resources such as schools and healthcare more equally between areas. Because you have to understand that there's ultimately enough space for people. There's this very horrible resource distribution that we have. That's why I think very intuitively investing a lot of money into space travel or living in Mars is a bit stupid. You know, it's usually a hobby for the very rich and some sort of technological achievement, something that we can smile about for some time. But instead, I think it would be much more effective and much more productive for governments and for the world to be adapting to such issues as climate change, solving overpopulation, investing more in rural areas to help the people on the ground today, you know, to make drought resistant crops, to build seawalls and etc. But another reason that I wanted to talk about is lopsided populations, which according to specialists basically occurs inevitably in like modern advanced nations due to like lower birth rates. Of course, we have come to the point in the developed world where we don't need to have 10 children 
because we know that all of our children will live, they will not die from diseases when they're infants, and we also know that we don't need to birth very many children because we don't need them to take care of us when we're old, to, to like take care of our farm and stuff. You know, the economy has developed in different ways. But uh, this, this results in a problem because that means that young workers are basically unable to support aging populations because we have less children ultimately. So when there are more old people who are in retirement, right? Then young people who are employable, this is of course A, bad for the economy, but B, also very bad for the people. For example, right now, France is increasing pension ages. So people have to work for longer and they cannot go to retirement when they perhaps want to or when they could beforehand. And also a good and controversial perhaps example would be China with their one-child policy. So this one-child policy that they had until 2016, it might have helped them for some time, it might have helped them to like regulate the population and the economy, but right now it does have the very big side effect of having a lopsided population in China and having a very big aging population problem. So then you might ask me after listening to me speak, like, why are we ignoring these, these facts? Why are we pointing all global issues such as global warming to overpopulation? Um, and I'll, I'll tell you what I think. So in my eyes, the problem is overconsumption and the, like, the demand side of things, not necessarily overpopulation. And of course, guess who overconsumes? I'll tell you this in every episode. The Western world, right? The middle and the higher class. You know, they're the ones who have a lifestyle of flying cheap planes, excessively shopping, driving old cars, supporting corporations with buying their cheap services and products. So, of course, it's a lifestyle issue that we've been culturally accustomed to, and I don't want to individually blame anyone for being born in this world, you know, but it's a big issue for us. And the ones who supply these people in the West, the workers who are often exploited, they're the ones who do not consume a lot, but they're the ones who usually have a lot of children, right, in the global South. They're the ones who eat every piece of food in their kitchen instead of throwing it out. They're the ones who thrift because they need to, not because it's a trend. And they're the ones who use public transportation instead of having a car because of their financial situation. So we very much understand that people breathe less when they become richer, but they don't consume less, they consume more. So ultimately, all of the climate activists that are saying right now, stop having children, have less children if you want to save the planet, they don't make that much change, you see, because my individual carbon footprint can be literally bigger than a family of two parents and six children somewhere in another continent, because they might literally consume way less as a family than I do as an individual living quite a privileged life. So you see, that's why ultimately, like even having a child uh, when they breathe and, and emit CO2, that still doesn't even compare to the issue that we really have, which is like the system that we live in and the lifestyles that we have. But also a lot of governments, especially right now, love to say about climate change that it's every individual's issue and we should all be individually changing ourselves and stuff. And it's under 
understand it's understandable like it's good i understand that it's better for us to go vegan and recycle and drive hybrid or electric cars put solar panels on our rooftops that shows a good example to others and sort of helps our communities prosper right but if we do not change the systems that we live in we will never save the planet our lifestyles will never fully change if we do not change the consumerism culture that we have and thus i would also argue that all of the problems of shortages of food and energy due to overpopulation. I would also argue that if these problems do exist, they exist not because of overpopulation, but because of capitalist structures, which allow billionaires to steal the, like a lot of natural resources. And uh, basically when you put crucial resources such as water in the hands of private, like private corporations and stuff, which literally then can decide who to give the crucial resource to and how much to accumulate it or not. So the moral of the story that I want to tell you is that basically the biggest problem is the horrible allocation of resources and the capitalist world order. It is not necessarily that we have an overpopulated planet. Wow, Milda, that was an excellent monologue. Um, and honestly, I have to say, I just learned a lot from that. I feel like overpopulation is just one of those things that we that we accept as like, oh, that's a bad thing. Oh no, we should just avoid that. But in reality, if there was a change in the way that our lifestyles were, it wouldn't honestly be that much of a problem. So my question for you is, how do you see a way out of this like practically? Like people like to congregate in cities because that's where the jobs are and that's where, you know, everything is close and convenient and, and, and easy for them. How do you, how do you see a way um, out of this? Yeah, well, actually, it's, it's so interesting that you ask because we literally had a debate about this, like in a championship in the weekend, about people <laughs> migrating from urban to rural areas. I mean, there's a lot of things that the, the government can do. They can give subsidies to people who want to move to rural areas so that it's easier for them to like, get housing. They can, of course, invest a lot more in rural areas. Uh, and overall, I don't think that there's a lot of persuading that you need to do for people to move because really people are living so horribly and so depressingly. Like if you look at New York, I think the students are so broke. It wouldn't take a lot, I think, to say, look, we're, we're giving you some money, move to somewhere more rural, but you'll live in this beautiful apartment for like three times cheaper than you're living in New York in this crammed room and you'll get a job for your profession that you actually study, not for a, a random job that you don't even like in New York. So essentially, yeah. No, but my question is really like, how can you ensure that they get a job, right? Because the reason, at least in the US, a lot of people are, are moving out of rural areas because they were focused on mining or they were focused on oil production or you know anything like that. And once those resources dried up, once coal became out of fashion, once, you know, companies started to look elsewhere for oil those those jobs just dried up and that's why people moved to the city because those those towns were dying how do you think that we can get job opportunities out into more open rural areas yeah well of course that's a very complex issue i think we need to offer more opportunities for these kind of people who lost jobs to retrain themselves or gain new skills to be able to like still be employable in other uh, sectors but um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there's always incentives for businesses to expand to rural areas. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I think it's a very complex issue and it has to be attacked yeah. from different kind of perspectives. Yeah, agreed. So many of you guys reached out to me and texted me and were like, Vishwa, I can't believe that you just let Milda walk all over you and talk about centrists like that. Don't worry, guys. Don't worry, guys. My plan all along was not to let Milda off the hook for that. She really offended me and offended centrists everywhere. And I'm here today to finally respond to Milda's monologue and argue my positive case for the Radical Center. So Milda's monologue had me thinking a lot about the center and centrism. Uh, she made what I thought were some accurate statements about centrists uh, being slaves to the status quo sometimes, overly moderate when they need to be radical, uh, which I think, yeah, to an extent is, is mostly true of many self-described centrists, but in my opinion is a far too broad generalization and treats the term centrist as being interchangeable with moderate or status quoist. I offer what I believe is a different and somewhat more accurate characterization of not only what the center is, but what I think the center should be. Um, it's a very pragmatic uh, approach to politics. And I call my version of the center, the radical center. I didn't make this term up, but I'm a big fan of the term and a big advocate for using the term radical centrism. In this monologue, I will be explaining to you what radical centrism is and why I believe it is the best ideology for the future. So first, before I talk about radical centrism, I think we really need to break down what is centrism. Milda said a whole bunch of things as to what centrism is, but to me, the key defining characteristic of a centrist and what makes a centrist different from a moderate or a status quoist or, or anything like that is the willingness to step outside of conventional ideologies and uh, form heterodox views that are from different parts of the political uh, spectrum. They don't necessarily have to conform with a particular party or political ideology or politi particular uh, political theory or framework or whatever. In short, centrism, I believe, is defined not as an ideology, but actually as something that is quite the opposite of an ideology, an anti-ideology that re rejects sort of uh, conformity and all dogma of any form in favor of a more free-thinking and pragmatic and problem-oriented solution to politics. I think that this is the way to go because, first of all, I just believe it's the most natural way for humans to think, and thus that is how politics should work. Humans and their views are complex and nuanced in a way that political parties or any particular political theorist just simply cannot capture. Humans have variety of views from across the spectrum and have there are different solutions like basically this the the idea is that no one has it completely right and centrism offers a way of thinking that is free and detached from any particular uh ideology or framework so what is radical centrism so radical centrism to me again isn't so much about being an ideology but an attitude in the way that you approach politics. The reality about life is that it is so complex and no singular ideology or person or like conservatism, liberalism, socialism, they, they all have their benefits and they all have their drawbacks. For example, conservatism, they can teach us, conservatives can teach us a lot about morals, the importance of 
of family, the importance of, uh, of you know, the universality of, of morals and, and, and being a good person and things like that. Um, and also help us like uphold some traditions and practices that have served us well in the past. But the problem with conservatives is that they just struggle to adapt for future problems. Conservatives might have old solutions that work for old problems, but simply cannot modernize. Socialists. Socialists can teach us the importance of compassion and, and ending inequity and inequality and things like that. But what they fail to do is find efficient solutions and they also struggle to innovate. Radical centrists see the world in a solution-oriented manner rather than an ideologically driven manner. This is guided not by any particular dogma or, or certain values or certain tenets. Like for example, a lot of Marxists are just guided by Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto written by Karl Marx. And they're like, you wanna know my ideology? It's this book. It's almost, it's almost like religion for a lot of people. Basically, radical centrists are guided not by any particular dogma, but certain universal humanist principles like justice, equality, freedom, and human dignity. Um, and we take those as the framework for achieving desirable outcomes for society. Why do I believe that this solution-oriented way of seeing the world is the best? Because I think it's just the way that we achieve desirable outcomes. If you have a problem in society that you would like to see addressed, you try and find a solution to it. You don't look into a book and say, oh, what is the correct conservative way of thinking about it? What is the correct socialist way? No, none of that should matter. It should be evidence-based. Um, and, and it should be multifaceted as well, because look, like I talked about in my populism um, like uh, section of this podcast, complex problems require complex solutions. And ideologies do not provide any room for complexity. They are rigid, they are dogmatic. Evidence-based and multifaceted approaches are the best way to go because that is the way that the world works. Um, so we can approach this to, let's say, a problem like, like climate change. Let's see what an evidence-based, multifaceted, radical centrist approach would be. So something that we would draw from like conservatives and free market, like neoliberals would be, okay, so, if we wanna move away from gasoline and, and fossil fuels, we should encourage green energy companies, right? And the way that, one way that we can do that is by completely deregulating the sector, complete laissez-faire economics, um, you know, slash, slashing their corporate taxes to almost zero. That, that's a conservative way of encouraging growth. And that would encourage the growth of these companies to provide a desirable outcome. Um, a socialist would reject those because those are fundamentally the antithesis of socialist uh, practices and socialist beliefs, but it may actually achieve desirable outcomes. But in addition to the laissez-faire economic policy, we would also have to do some more big government sort of things like, you know, banning gasoline cars or giving guaranteed income supports or guaranteed federal jobs to people that have been affected by the energy sector. For example, Canada's energy sector is massive. We just completely shut it down, which is something that we eventually need to do. Millions upon millions of Canadians are gonna be out of jobs. Maybe the government says, you know what? We're gonna guarantee that you get a federal job, federal pension, et cetera, or we're gonna guarantee that we're gonna provide you some sort of stipend to compensate for your uh, future income, some retraining, things like that. If you take a singular ideological approach 
you'll always be missing something. If you just go with the socialist approach and say like, okay, we're gonna ban this, we're gonna give income supports to these people, you're missing the opportunity to, you know, see the rise of technology like carbon capture, see the rise of technology like, um, you know, low, low emissions transportations, et cetera, et cetera. But if you completely take the laissez-faire approach, then you're not gonna do anything to address the climate crisis. Complex problems require complex solutions. I'll say it again. Ideology does not provide room for complexity, but radical centrism does. So why is the radical center so radical? I mean, firstly, we need to talk about just this way of thinking is fundamentally radical in today's polarized and, and, and tribalized society. It, it just accepts that things do not require a strict adherence to ideology or orthodoxy or anything. And you don't necessarily have to be consistent in any way. For example, I am in favor of a laissez-faire telecom industry, like more competition that's better for everyone. I don't really su support a lot of regulation there, but I'm a huge proponent of single-payer healthcare and mandatory parent uh, employer-sponsored uh, parental leave and things like that. These are issues that you would normally associate with complete opposite ends of the political spectrum. And the reason that I'm in favor of those two things is, is very simple. It's not because I'm a conservative. It's not because I'm a liberal. It's because I think that those things are good for society. Why can't we all just think, oh, these things are good for society. I will do them. Instead of thinking, oh, what is the correct conservative position on this topic? Because the correct conservative position on employer-mandated um, parental leave would be not to have it. But I don't think that's a desirable outcome for society. The correct um, like left-wing position on, on telecom would be to nationalize it. I don't think that that's the right thing to do because I think that it doesn't achieve an outcome that I find desirable for society. I just think that this detaching your idea from what the orthodoxy tells you is just fundamentally radical in today's world where we're too busy about self-identifying as whatever political tribe. Um, so what's the second reason why I believe it's radical? I mean, this is basically a direct response to Milda's characterization of centrism as being moderate and incrementalist. Moderation and incrementalism isn't a fundamental part of the radical center. Like, you can be, like, you know, searching for the middle ground, and you can want to, like, move along slowly for things for, like, pragmatic reasons. You can at times. You can, you can do that. But it's not necessary to the ideology of its, in and of itself. Like there are times where we can accept as radical centrists that one way of thinking is entirely correct and one ideology has it completely right on one particular issue or one ideology has it completely incorrect on one particular issue. We're not constantly searching for a middle ground or an incrementalist uh, solution. Okay, so let's conclude this little rant about radical centrism. I think that radical centrism is the best way of thinking about politics because it acknowledges complexity and nuance, and also acknowledges that there is no universal truth that one singular person or one uh, singular ideology is in like possession of. No one has it 100% right. It's a heterodox way of thinking uh, about the world that centers on core humanist values and has a pragmatic, solutions-oriented approach to solving the world's problem. Through this rant, I hope that I have converted you to my church of radical centrism. And I hope that I've convinced you that radical centrism is not only the way forward for the center, but the way forward for humanity.
All right, everyone, that wraps up the third episode of Wake Up Call. As always, if you like the show, I really encourage you to leave us a good rating on Spotify, follow us on Spotify, um, like the show on uh, Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review, even if you don't like it. And also make sure to follow our Instagram at Wake Up Call Podcast. Um, with underscores in between everything, that's where you'll get a lot of exclusive content and clips from the show. I'd also like to extend our thank you to Rokas. He was a great guest. I personally learned a lot from that interview and that discussion. And uh, yeah, that wraps it up. We'll see you all in two weeks. <laughs>